Good morning, everybody. So good to see you all and to worship with you. And thanks, Aaron, for that beautiful solo. It was incredible. I'm excited to be with you today as we continue our series called Twisted. And if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Jason do an amazing job kicking off this series. And the heart behind the series is to help us learn to be better readers and better appliers of scripture. Because the truth is, oftentimes, we hear verses or we hear passages of scripture, and sometimes they're not even really in the Bible, but we think they are. And there's other times that we, we hear something or we use scripture in a way that it wasn't meant to be used. So in this series, we're hopefully digging into some different misused, misunderstood scripture passages and learning what God's heart is, what he wants to teach us, and all the while learning to be better readers and studiers of scripture. Now, I think sometimes we just hear a phrase used over and over again. We hear a verse used over and over again, and we assume, well, yeah, it must be in the Bible. But if you actually would investigate, you'd find it's not even there. For instance, maybe you've heard people say, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that before? It's not in the Bible. How about God will never give you more than you can handle? It's not in there. How about this one? God wants you to be happy. It's not in there. Now, sometimes I think we take these fragments of verses or fragments of Scripture, and we want to believe they're true because they back up our own agenda, our own preconceived notions. So in this series, we're encouraging you to get in the Word daily, but not to just get in the Word occasionally and take little fragments, but to actually get to know the, the whole Word of God, to look at the bigger picture and then be willing to dig deep. So if you were here last week, Pastor Jason gave us three important things to look at, just three basic questions to ask anytime we open up the Bible. So number one, we should always be asking, what is the context? Anytime you're going to read a verse or a passage, what is the context? What's going on? You know, kind of the who, what, when, where, why, and how. What's the history? What, is, what are the people that are involved? And maybe even a bigger thing that we sometimes forget to do is to look at the rest of the chapter, look at even the rest of the book, to see what is really going on. Don't be just content to look at one or two verses. Look at what happened before and what's happening after. Secondly, we need to ask, what does the rest of Scripture say? We always want to have Scripture interpret Scripture. So if you read a passage and you start to come to some conclusions and you're wondering, is this what God is teaching me? Make sure that it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. If you're reading about God's heart for something, find other places to back that up. Also, there are times when something is communicated in the Bible that is for one time, one place, and one people. There are other things communicated in the Bible that are for all times, all places, and all people. And so we need to do the investigation. We need to look at, is this consistent throughout Scripture, or was it just for one particular time in history? 
thirdly, then we need to ask the big question of what does this mean for me? This is the application part. What does God want me to do? What is he calling me to do? Or how is he calling me to respond? And as Pastor Jason said, if you just stop after the first two questions, you have a nice book study. You know, anyone can do that. But it's that third big question. What is God calling me to do? How does he want me to apply this in my life? That's so important. And so we're going to model this each week, and we hope that you're going home and you're opening up your Bible at home. Do you know, like, the average American household has seven Bibles, but they open them once a year? Let's not be those statistics. Let's be opening up the word, digging in, and asking the right questions. Now, also, a little bit of an infomercial. We have some excellent Bible classes that take place on Sunday mornings. And they're kicking off again for the fall on September 9th. So just around the corner. So what I want to encourage you to do is to come to this service, just an incredible worship opportunity. Go out, get your coffee, get a donut, and then head up to the second floor at 1030 and join in one of our Bible classes. Gary and Marcy do an incredible job, and they're kicking off on September 9th with the essentials, the basics of Bible study. And if you're like, well, I've been studying the Bible my whole life since I was two years old or something, every one of us can continue to grow in this. And so please come and join in in our Bible classes on Sunday morning, starting September 9th. Well, today we're going to talk about a frequently misunderstood and misused portion of Scripture. And it's a topic that many of you are going to be uncomfortable with. But here's the thing. I want to encourage you to lean into that feeling. If your first reaction, once we get into this topic, is to dismiss it or to ignore it or to just tune out or deflect it, If that's your first reaction, I believe that's a sign that God wants to speak directly to you today. That you are at the right place at the right time for what God wants to do in your heart. Or if you feel this urge to think about all the other people you know that should hear this message. You know, like, I'm good, but all these people really should hear what God has to say about this. If that's your inclination... I want you to lean into that and consider that maybe this is a message for you personally. Again, you are at the right place at the right time for what God wants to speak into your life. So as you might have guessed, we today are going to talk about money. Nobody's real excited about that. I see some of you kind of subconsciously putting your hand over your wallet. You're starting to get nervous right now. You're having visions of like some televangelist guy up front trying to take all your money from you. The thing is, this is such an important topic. And it's important because Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined in the Gospels. Did you know that? That 11 of his 39 parables are about how we approach and interact with money. And so if you're thinking, well, this is all they ever talk about at church, I knew it. Well, of course, that's not true. 
But it is an important topic because it gets to where our heart is. And because it was important to Jesus, it needs to be important to us. One more thing before we dig in. I want you to know here at Calvary, we don't want something from you. We want something for you. There's a big difference there. We don't want something from you. We're not trying to manipulate things. We don't want to, you know, shake you upside down and get all the change out of your pocket. We don't want something from you. We want something for you. We believe God has a greater and better way for each one of us to live. And so this is an important topic for me and for you today. So one of the most misquoted and misunderstood passages about money in the Bible is the saying, money is the root of all evil. Have you ever heard someone say that before? I saw it on a tip jar one time. Kind of wondering how that was working out for him. But you know, that's not what God said at all. Yes, there is a connection between money and evil. But it is the love of money that is the problem. Money in and of itself is neutral. It's just a tool that we use for commerce and buy and sell things and it assigns value. But just of itself, money is a neutral thing. But Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6.10 that it's a love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not money that's the problem. It's our attitude. It's our heart. It's our posture towards money. So I want to stop for a moment there. Because some of you are thinking, hey, I'm good. I've got a great attitude about money. Now, there's all these other people in our culture that could really stand to hear this today. Well, if that's what you're thinking, just consider for a moment what King Solomon has to say in Ecclesiastes 5.10. Now, this is the richest man to ever live in history. And he says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Okay, there's two qualities there. He says they never have enough and they're never satisfied. So how do you know when things are getting dangerous, when your heart maybe isn't in the right place? It's when you feel like you don't have enough. Or when you aren't quite satisfied with what God has blessed you with. So if I were to ask you, how much would you need to be fully happy today? And how much would you need to be completely satisfied today? I think I know how every single one of us would answer, if we were honest. I think every one of us would say, just a little bit more. Like, I'm pretty good. I can make it from day to day. But if I just had a little more, then I would finally be happy and satisfied. And to that kind of attitude that comes from our hearts, Paul would say, and Solomon would say, you've got an issue. Something God wants to address in your life. So Paul wants to help us to understand why this can be so dangerous. He wants us to understand what's really at risk here and how to deal with it. So our context today is 1 Timothy, which is a book where Paul is writing to his young protege named Timothy. And Paul is giving Timothy all kinds of advice and counsel about pastoring a church at Ephesus. 
And Paul has wisdom, and he's got instructions, and he wants to help him in two big areas. He wants to help Timothy in the overall leadership of the church, and he also wants to help Timothy as he approaches and ministers to individuals in the church. And he wants to make sure Timothy understands what some of the biggest dangers are. What are some of the biggest pitfalls that could come his way? And one of the biggest problems, really in any church, but especially in the church at Ephesus, was the problem of false teachers. There were people coming on the scene, and they'd seem to be on the up and up, and they would start to teach a false gospel. And Paul identifies that one of the ways that they start to distort the gospel is they were using it for profit. They were trying to teach on how to get rich, and ultimately they wanted to get rich. And so Paul wants us to understand what's at stake. So look again at 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting with verse 6. And he says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. And you see, in the yellow word there, that's where the key is. This is what's at stake. Paul is concerned with godliness. He's concerned with our spiritual well-being. This isn't just about money. It's not just about your bank account. This is about your spiritual good, your relationship with God. And so why is the love of money so dangerous? Paul highlights two important things. Number one, money can be dangerous because if that's the focal point of your life, if that's what you are living for, you waste your life pursuing something you're going to lose. If money is your greatest affection, if that's driving your life, ultimately you are wasting your life pursuing something you're going to lose. It's just a truth of being a human being, right? Every dollar you make, every possession you buy, ultimately you are going to leave behind. One day I was riding with a funeral director to a burial and he was telling me a story about a funeral he was doing uh, right around that time where a family wanted a very nice suit to be tailored for the deceased. Well, he had a relationship with a tailor close to his funeral home, and so he connected them, and the tailor was making this beautiful suit for the deceased to wear in his casket. He said, you know, it's pretty much the same as tailoring a suit for a living person, except one big difference. And that one difference is he didn't have to put pockets in it, right? There's no need for pockets when you're in a casket. You can't bring anything with you. It's the same reason that we never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it, right? You can't take anything with you when you go. We never know when life is going to change. We don't know how many more minutes or hours or days or years we have left. Just takes a sudden tragedy or a diagnosis, even the stock market crashing, and everything can be gone in an instant. Don't waste your life pursuing something you're ultimately going to lose. Next, Paul says in verse 9, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped. This is serious. 
They're trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Wow. Loving money, making it the focal point of your life, is a deadly trap. When we fall into the temptation to let our earthly desires dictate our choices, when those things direct our life, it easily leads us to destruction. We end up in debt, and not just financial debt, but we end up in spiritual debt. And like any addiction, there's never enough. We just want more and more and more. It reminds me of a story I read one time about a ship a number of decades ago that sank out in the middle of the ocean. And all the crew members on the ship were fortunate to get into one life raft together. And they were floating for days out at sea. And eventually, they went through all of their provisions. They ate all of their emergency food, and they drank all of their fresh water. The problem then became they were hallucinating. The reality wasn't real. And one of the crew members is looking out on ocean water in every direction, and he's like, what are we doing? Look at all the water. And so he bent over the the life raft, and he started to drink the salt water. And the rest of the crew members were trying to warn him, like, don't do this. This is dangerous. But the man said, look, we have all this water to drink. And he kept drinking and drinking. And eventually he felt his thirst was quenched for just a moment. And then it came back a thousand times worse. And he went back and he drank until he died. You see, it's kind of an illustration of money and possessions in our world. When we get addicted to those things, there's never enough. We hunger and thirst after something that will never truly satisfy us. It's a deadly, deadly trap. And so because of this danger, Paul says in verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Again, the most deadly part of the trap is not just the money element. It's that people will wander away from the faith. Now, I don't think it's any mistake that Paul chooses to use the illustration, the idea of a root in this passage. Because it gets at an important spiritual truth for every one of us. And that's this. The root always determines the fruit. The root always determines the fruit. The love of money is a root sin, meaning it feeds and it nourishes and it sustains all kinds of other sins. You know, it's kind of like when you plant a garden or you put a tree in your yard. You're free to choose the root. But once it's planted, you can't choose another fruit, right? If you plant an apple tree, you can't expect oranges to grow on it or vice versa. The root eventually determines the fruit. And also, just like weeds that overtake a garden or a lawn, if you truly want to get rid of those weeds, what do you have to do? 
to dig down and get at the root. And the same thing is true in our lives. Now think of how this can show up in so many different ways, just this root sin of the love of money. Think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. Each one of them can be directly tied to a love of money. What are we told is to have no other gods before our one true God? But for how many people in our culture and our world does money become their God? How about honor your father and mother? I mean, way too often we see how families are fractured and broken because of a love of money. How about thou shalt not steal? We see fraud and we see all kinds of lying and cheating that goes on. And I think many of those things wouldn't even take place if there wasn't a love of money. We're also told not to covet anything of our neighbors. And again, it's often from a love of money that we become jealous and envious about what other people have. So if we don't address this root in our lives, if we allow it to still be present, even below the surface, it's going to come back again and again and again. So church, why do we so easily allow money to take up root in our lives? Why do we think that the solution to many problems in life is just a little bit more and a little bit more? I think it's because money promises what only God can provide. I'll say it one more time. Money promises what only God can provide. Jesus made this clear in our gospel lesson from Matthew 6. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. Think about what money tries to promise us. It tries to promise us happiness. If you just have a big enough net worth, if you just have enough investments, enough stuff, somehow you will be happy. Yet if you talk to many wealthy people, they'll tell you there is never enough to truly bring you lasting happiness. How about security? Many of us live under the illusion that if we have a big enough bank account and enough investments, if our retirement is big enough, then we can somehow be bulletproof. But how quickly can that change? One diagnosis, one tragedy, and we suddenly realize money can't buy security. How about how money tries to promise significance? You know, we're heading off maybe to a 25th class reunion or a 50th class reunion, and we think, you know, if I could drive up in just a beautiful brand new red convertible and have the nicest clothes and have all of these, you know, impressive things, then people will look at me with respect and significance. But in the end, we know we can't buy respect and significance. When we think we need money to be happy, to be secure, to be significant, we are under the power and influence of money. Church, money will not meet our deepest needs. Only Jesus will meet our deepest needs. More money cannot keep your kids from rebelling. It can't make your spouse love you more. It can't ultimately give us the security that we need because every minute is uncertain. You know, when we don't have Jesus at the center of our lives, money and possessions, they start to look really, really good. 
But when you have Jesus at the center, when you truly rely on him from day to day, then you can be content with what you already have. There's a band that sings a song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I think that's the story of so many in our world and maybe even some here today who are searching and searching and searching in all the wrong places. Do you feel yourself searching for things like happiness and security and significance? What you need today is more Jesus. You need more of his love and his grace and his power and his promises. Remember, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the living water. He is the only one who can quench your thirst, who can satisfy your hunger forever. No matter what you have in your bank account, your identity and your worth is found in Jesus alone. Well, then towards the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul gives us three important things to practice from day to day. Three important things to put into practice that will help us remove the root of money from our lives. So going back to verses 6 and 8, the first thing we need to do is learn contentment. We need to be content with what God has blessed us with. Now, oftentimes, if we think about what do we actually need in our life, we start with the basics. We need food, we need clothing, we need shelter. But then I kind of need Netflix, and I need an iPhone, and I need a nice car, and the list goes on and on. So easy not to be content with what we have. Did you know that if you make $37,000 a year, you are in the top 4% of the richest people on earth? Too often, I think, we read the Bible like it was written only to Americans, to our reality. And so we read Paul talking about rich people, and we say, yeah, all those people over there. And we fail to recognize how rich we truly are. Be grateful for what you have. Be content. Discontentment can make a rich person poor on the inside, and contentment can make a poor person rich on the inside contentment is an attitude of trust towards god's provision it's a belief that god will keep his promises and will meet our needs so are we appreciating what he has already given us or are we just looking at everyone else wishing we had what they had today if you can say you are content with what god has blessed you with you are truly a rich person Next, verse 17, we need to avoid misplaced trust. Here's how Paul puts it. He says, teach those who are rich in this world, and again, before you tune out, saying that's not about me, just admit every one of us is rich in proportion to the rest of the world. So teach all of us who are rich in the world not to be proud and what? Not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God. Avoid misplaced trust. Money promises what only God can provide. 
Don't put your trust in wealth. Put your trust in God. You know, richness in the eyes of the world gives a false sense of security. That's why Jesus said it's so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because ultimately, they don't think they really need it. They think they've got it all figured out. Here's the truth, church. The richest people are not those who have the most. The richest people are those who need the least. The richest people are not those who have the most. The richest people are those who need the least. Now, the place I've experienced this most clearly is on different mission trips that I've been on. Down in Honduras, in a very poor part of South Africa, out in Appalachia, and the Indian Reservation in South Dakota. In these places, I've seen some of the most incredible poverty. In Honduras, we saw people living in tarps. When in South Africa, we saw people living in boxes. But in the interactions with these people, we saw more contentment and more trust than we had ever seen before. These are people who don't even know where they're going to find food to eat that particular day. Yet they are content and they trust in God. And it brings a a contagious joy into their lives. It was so powerful to witness. Avoid misplaced trust. And then verse 18, practice, live, generosity, or generously. Paul says, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Key word, always. Not just when you feel like it, not just when you have you know, a big enough account, not just when you have a ton of margin. Always being ready to share with others. You see, the antidote to a love of money is generosity. If you have this just never-ending appetite for more and more and more, one of the best ways to get at it is to give more away. What we teach here at Calvary is a biblical model of money management. You can remember it with just three numbers. It's 10, 10, 80. The first 10% is God's. Because everything he gives us is rightfully his anyway. There's nothing that we have that we own. Everything is God's. So he asks for our first 10%. Then we're to save our next 10%. And then we should live on the final 80%. This is so countercultural because what we see in our country is what? People live on 100% or really 105% or 115% their credit cards, right? And it keeps people captive. But instead, God gives us this model. Give him our first 10%. Really what it is, is it's telling our money who's boss. You know, we get our money and it's saying, I'm going to make all these promises to you. When you give the first 10% to God, you're telling your money, you're not in control of me. In fact, I'm going to show you who's boss. God's my boss. And then we save 10%, be responsible financially, and it causes us to live with margin, living on the final 80%. Now tithing, first 10%, a lot of times we feel a kind of a repelling from that, we start to justify why we don't do that. 
but it really is one of the most effective ways to move towards a life of generosity. This isn't about legalism. We're not going to come and grab your W-2 and you know, assess you a fine or something. Instead, remember, we want something for you, not something from you. The truth is, you will never, ever be able to outgive God. You can try, but you can't. He gives so much more than we can give him. And he shows that ultimately in giving Jesus to die for us. But think about our response. A lot of times what we tend to do is give God our leftovers. Pay all our bills, some entertainment, go eat out. Whatever I have left, that's what I'm going to give God at the end. Or even worse, sometimes we just kind of give God a tip. Right? God, you're doing a pretty good job this week, so I'll, just, I'll give you a little tip. What does it say about our faith and our trust in God if we're giving him our leftovers or if we're just giving him a little tip? He wants us to trust him with our whole life. And so we can give our first 10%, the first fruits, the best portion to him. Now, I can remember the day when my wife Lexi and I decided that we were going to tithe in our marriage. All right, it was a big decision. We had just gotten married. All right, we're going to do this thing. We weren't making much money, so it wasn't a ton, but still, we were pretty tight. And what we would do oftentimes is try to live a couple months, make sure all our bills were covered and things we wanted to do were done, and then we'd kind of calculate what a tithe would be for the last three months, and we'd have to write this big check, and it was so stressful. There was no joy in it at all. So one day we sat down again and said, all right, we got to do this better. What we need to do is give God the first 10%. That's what he asks. He even says, put me to the test. All right, God, we're going to put you to the test. And so every check we get, the first 10% is God's. And we've never looked back. And he's always been faithful. And he's blessed us in amazing ways. If you haven't tried it before, you're missing out because God wants to do something incredible in your life. Now, it makes me think of a story about a man who went to see a pastor. He said, Pastor, you know, I've heard people teach on tithing, and, you know, it's such a hard thing. You know, like, when I started out, I was making $30,000 a year. So tithing was $3,000. It was tough, but I did that. And then I got a raise, and I was making $50,000 a year. So $5,000 a year was you know, the tithe, and it, it was hard, but I, I did that. But, Pastor, I just got an incredible promotion, and now I'm making $100,000 a year. And that means I have to give $10,000 as a tithe, and there's no way I can afford that. What do I do? And the pastor said, let's pray. So they prayed, and he said, dear God, I ask that you reduce this man's salary so that he can tithe again. Are you joyfully giving God your first portion or just the leftovers? Are you sharing with others? Are you blessing others with what God has given you? If you were to ask someone close to you, am I a generous person? What would they say? Are you a generous person? Maybe more convicting, what if we ask God? God, am I a generous person? What would God say? Finally, verse 19, Paul says, by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. 
You see, this is all about your greatest return on investment. Don't just live for today. Live for eternity. Be less concerned with your earthly investments than your eternal dividends. Invest in the kingdom. Look many different ways. Share your faith with others. Invest and invite. Go and build relationships with people far from Christ. Invest generously into missions. Support missionaries around the world. But don't be concerned with earthly things. Prioritize the kingdom. See, church, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. And the life you have been searching for, it will never be found in things of this world. Put into practice these steps that the Apostle Paul has taught us today. Make sure that God is first and foremost in your life. Remember, you can't serve both God and money. And when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, and that includes all that he's blessed you with, he will always meet your deepest needs. Amen?